1500 KBYR. Opinions and views expressed on Alaska Outdoors magazine are not necessarily the opinions and views of staff and management of KBYR. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Alaska Outdoors magazine. Welcome to Alaska Outdoors Magazine with host Evan Swenson. You're invited to come along with us as we bring you accurate and authentic answers for Alaskans by Alaskans. It's your KBYR window to Alaska's outdoors. If it's in the outdoors and in Alaska, it's right here on Alaska Outdoor Magazine. Now here's Evan Swenson, your host for Alaska Outdoor Magazine. John is writer in residence at University of Alaska. His book, Extreme Conditions, according to the Anchorage Daily News, is a fascinating story, colorful, meaningful, and shameful. We'll talk to John about extreme conditions. Stop for Alaska Outdoors, subsistence scenarios and solutions, and go to the phones for your questions and comments, and save time for one last cast. Today's one last cast is titled, One in a Row. Now let's uh, talk with John Strohmeyer, uh, author of Extreme Conditions. John, welcome to Alaska Outdoors Radio Magazine. Well, I'm <coughs> glad to be here, Evan. That, uh, if I can't be fishing, I guess uh, this is about as good a place to be. <laughs> Talking about it or doing it, as they say. Well, yeah. Sure. Uh, John, extreme conditions. Uh, you're, uh, I guess you'd, in terms of uh, Bill and Lily, whom I uh, interviewed last week, the authors of uh, the book to Ala- Bill and Lily, Two Alaskans, who came to Alaska in 1914, you're a new kid on the block. Yeah, I've been here only 10 years. Uh, 10 winters, actually. 10 winters. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, how did, uh, what qualifies you to write a book about Alaska historically and 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 get you to the point to where uh, you're, you're getting into some pretty, in that book you're getting into some pretty thick issues of economics, uh, politics, uh, even into subsistence and other things? Well, I'm a journalist, and a journalist uh, uh, views any uh, as a provocative situation in the, as a challenge, and there are many provocative situations here in Alaska. Uh, let, let me tell you how I got here first. Can I do that? But, you bet. Yeah. I uh, put out a news. I was an investigative reporter at the Providence Journal for many years and uh, <clears throat> got into some pretty big controversies there. But for the last uh, 26 years afterwards, uh, I was editor of uh, a paper in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where I won a Pulitzer Prize. And uh, uh, after putting out the Daily Miracle all those years, I thought to myself, I'm not having too much fun. I ought to be doing some serious fishing. So I applied for the, uh, took an early retirement from the paper and applied for the Atwood Chair, which was financed by Bob Atwood of the Anchorage Times, Mm -hmm. you know. A very, very comparable chair, and I guess it's the only funded chair in the whole university, but uh, very competitive, and somehow I was chosen. I came up here in 87 and and taught for two years in the Atwood chair, and I have to confess that uh, uh, the first week I was here, I went down to the Kenai and checked out the salmon run down there, and 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 the rainbows and uh, after seeing the Kenai, I knew I'd never go back. Go back to the Kenai or go yeah, back, to, go back to Bethlehem. To Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bought a house, and after after two years of teaching, I uh, I I discovered that there was a real gap in 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 uh, what has been written about Alaska. We've had some great books about Alaska, you know, starting with uh, uh, McPhee and all the others. Uh, 
but no one has written a book on what happened to the state after that big money started to flow. And this is the gap that, as a journalist, I thought that uh, uh, it would be very, uh, very instructive uh, and very challenging to uh, just uh, follow the dollar, so to speak, uh, which is exactly what I spent the next three years doing. It took me three years to research the book and uh, started with Willie Hensley trapping muskrats and uh, ended up with, uh, uh, with uh, you know, the, the biggest, well, the impact of the biggest oil find in North America, uh, the impact that it had on a state that was just maturing and uh, growing up the hard way, some very bad investments. Many good things happened from that oil money. And of course, I ended up with, uh, I guess, the oil spill, which uh, Outside Magazine uh, claimed, or in its review, said it's the best written record of, of the Valdez oil spill uh, that, that, that they've seen. Uh huh. Well, in uh, a book that I read, uh, John, when I, we first came to Alaska, was uh, Edna Ferber's book, yeah. uh, Ice Palace. Do right. you recall that book? Oh, sure, I recall <laughs> that. And I think that was a very important uh, book in uh, winning statehood, winning uh, national support <laughs> for statehood. Well, one of the statements that she made in there, that, as you recall, they're talking about the ice palace, the apartment house, right. and sh and it was uh, had one-way glass in it. You could see out, you couldn't see in, right. and and she said Alaska is much like the ice palace. The uh, people on the inside can see out, right. but the people on the outside can't see in, even though it looks transparent. Yeah, that's very uh, true. Is that the case with what you've got here? And and. Also, John, she was speaking of people coming to Alaska that had only been here maybe 10 years. Uh, now, do you think that now you're, when you wrote that book, could you really see in, even though it looked transparent, or were, well, were are Alaskans the ones that's looking back and saying you didn't see it? This was a uh, journalist's view, and the journalist uh, starts out by digging into uh, every available reference possible. And in my case, I had two big advantages. One, I had the news clips of the Anchorage Daily, uh, the Anchor Daily Times, which were in excellent shape. And the second thing I had was the people who made history up here. Most of them were still alive. I I had over a hundred interviews on this thing, and it was a fascinating thing. Uh, you know, after you interview one hundred people, you've got this great collection of stories, contradictions, lies. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and and somehow or other it all comes together and the truth does emerge and the truth emerges by simply impressing with the facts John how much uh, could you rely on the uh, news clips from the Anchorage Daily News uh, to write the history of Alaska well you don't really you never rely on them entirely uh, I was talking about the Times. Uh, did you? Was this a slip of yours? You say the Daily News? Oh, I said the Daily News, and you said the Times. I, the Times has been gone, and, and I, I heard Daily News when you said it. But you, oh, Daily News didn't have any real news clips until about the mid '80s. Uh, okay. The Times. Well, oh, how how could you rely on the Times? Uh, Newspapers are the first record of history. That is where history is first recorded, and that's where you start. Uh, no one, uh, as an editor. No one edition of a newspaper is ever perfect. I mean, we, we, yeah, we make mistakes. Would you believe that? Well, history is in the eye of the beholder anyway. You well, know? Uh, as reporting uh, is. All right. Uh, I, that's where you start. Right. 
And so, so you're saying that you started with the newspaper, then went on from there. Well, it gave me great uh, sources to, uh, to talk to personally and led me to legislative audits, which are also very fascinating reading. Uh, uh, some, of the, some of the audits on uh, some of the investments that uh, our early governors made with all that oil money, uh, just, uh, you know, you, you couldn't imagine this happening in a, uh, in a more mature state. But we, we've had the largest uh, municipal corruption case, I guess, in, in recent history up there at the North Slope. Yes, Point Barrel. Point, yeah, Barrel. Uh, North, uh, we've had the, uh, the greatest, uh, uh, I guess, uh, investment in, in boondoggles. Uh, you still have those barley uh, houses, or those barley uh, silos. silos that, uh, yeah. there. If you, you want to see them, <laughs> uh, go ahead down Valdez. Valdez, there, there. I think they tore the one out in Seward. <laughs> But they never had a grain of barley in them. Yeah, yeah. Well, John, when we uh, when we come back uh, after the break, let's talk about fishing for a let's minute. Talk let's Kenai let's talk River. about the Ki- no, Kenai River. Now Kenai, you're home. No <laughs> clips on the Kenai River. All personal. <laughs> this is this is the real stuff. Okay. Well, we'll we are going to take a break, but we'll be right back. And when we come back, and we'll continue with our visit with John Strohmeyer, and we'll save time for today's one last cast titled "One in a Row." Stay tuned to Alaska Outdoor Magazine your KBYR window to Alaska Outdoors. There's an author masterminds book by Gordon Parker, Tales of Crime and Corruption creator, The Empty Mint Mystery. Darcy Anderson crouched in the bushes trying hard to be invisible. She held the small, silver-plated revolver ready. Two innocent people had already been murdered. She was determined she wouldn't be the third. Darcy clutched the revolver and prayed. You'll find all of Gordon's crime and corruption mystery novels with the Publication Consultant's logo on the cover at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. If you'd like to be an author mastermind's published author like Gordon Parker, Tales of Crime and Corruption creator, Publication Consultants can help. If you've written a book, if you're writing a book, or if you're thinking about writing a book, call for the free booklet, Bringing Your Book to Market. Call 349-2424. The Empty Mint Mystery was just a dream until Gordon ordered his own Bringing Your Book to Market. Publication consultants will send you the booklet free. Call 349-2424 for the free booklet Bringing Your Book to Market. 349-2424. Gordon Parker called, and now The Empty Mint Mystery is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. You're listening to Alaska Outdoor Magazine on 700 KBYR. Welcome back to your KBYR window to Alaska Outdoors, Alaska Outdoor Magazine. We're glad you decided to come along with us. Okay, John, let's go down to not the Rorotonga, but let's go to the Kenai uh, River where they don't have tuna, but they have kings. They've got everything down there. They've got everything a sportsman can ever dreams of. I mean, tuna... That's work, pulling in a tuna. I've pulled in a few of those in my time. Nothing as thrilling or exhilarating as catching a decent rainbow on the Kenai River. Now, people don't think of the Kenai as a rainbow. Now, you're going to you're gonna sit here and tell us that you go rainbow fishing on the uh, Kenai. Yeah, I do. Uh, on the other hand, I have to admit that uh, I'm sort of a subsistence character. I make sure I have enough reds and silvers in there before I start getting serious about rainbows. But any time from late August right on to now, uh, if you can afford to wade the, 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 the snow banks, there's excellent rainbow fishing. 
Now, the river is stressed. Now, and this worries me because I, I see it over a perspective of 10 years. <coughs> Let me just first uh, tell you, uh, this book, uh, the book in hardcover, Extreme Conditions, was written uh, three years ago. It was published by uh, Simon Schuster. And what is new about and it has a chapter on the Kenai. What is new about it is that uh, it's come out in paperback this, uh, this month, and um, it's got an updated epilogue. But the, the original chapter was written uh, three years ago. Uh, the chapter on the Kenai. On the Kenai, uh-huh. yeah. And um, I suppose the, 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 the thing about the, uh, what struck me then was how fast the river was becoming stressed. Uh, this I blame upon Alaskans. I blame it upon uh, the greedy um, outfitters and unscrupulous guides. Uh, I, I think I quote one of the retired uh, fish and life people who sits up in his cabin there and he sees this guy uh, during the king season come up and fish that great hole there, which he can in, almost in front of his place. Catch their limited kings, they go back, the same crew is back there catching another limited creek of kings. From my point of view, uh, okay, uh, okay, kings have a way of reviving year after year. But rainbows take a harder beating. Uh, during the when the when the reds are running and they, you know the two runs of uh, people are fishing with coho flies, rainbows will hit a coho. Fly. Oh sure, and I see them drag those rainbows up on the banks, uh, on those rocky banks. Yeah, and those who know they're supposed to release them kick them back. Can you imagine that? But a great number of people, and I guess these are out of staters. My gosh, they get an 18-inch rainbow; they're ecstatic. They put it on a stringer. And I've, uh, I've uh, noticed that Alaskans uh, maybe will look askance, but I never saw anybody to say, put that damn thing back. Man, that's illegal. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, Alaskans are not policing their own street. Yeah, yeah. John, we're going to uh, take a, a short break. And when we come back, let's continue this uh, talk about the Kenai. I want to uh, find out what's the biggest rainbow You've uh, taken on the uh, Kenai, and I want to compare it to mine because I'll have to confess, John, the largest rainbow that I have taken in Alaska has been on the Kenai River. I want to compare mine to yours. Doesn't surprise me. We're going to take a break, but we'll be right back. We'll continue our visit with John Strohmeyer. We'll stop for Alaska Outdoor Subsistence Scenarios and Solutions, and we'll save time for today's one last cast titled One in a Row. Stay tuned to Alaska Outdoor Magazine, your KBYR window to Alaska Outdoors. There's an author masterminds book by Carl Douglas, neurosurgeon turned author, writes with gripping realism, all in jest. How the jest comes about is worth the reading. The book is full of fun, humor, anger, fear, pathos, intense emotional conflict, and tense and riveting courtroom drama. There is a considerable amount of theater outside the courts as well. You will want to read it in one sitting and pass it along to your family and friends the next day. You'll find all of Carl's 28 novels with the publication consultant's logo on the cover at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. If you'd like to be an author masterminds published author like Carl Douglas, neurosurgeon-turned-author writes with gripping realism, publication consultants can help. If you've written a book, if you're writing a book, 
or if you're thinking about writing a book, call for the free booklet, Bringing Your Book to Market. Call 349-2424. All in Jest was just a dream until Carl ordered his own Bringing Your Book to Market. Publication consultants will send you the booklet free. Call 349-2424 for the free booklet, Bringing Your Book to Market. 349-2424. Carl Douglas called, and now All in Jest is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and everywhere good books are sold. You're listening to Alaska Outdoor Magazine on 700 KBYR. Welcome back to your KBYR window to Alaska Outdoors, Alaska Outdoor Magazine. We're glad you decided to come along with us. Before we return to John Strohmeyer, today's guest, here's Alaska Outdoors subsistence scenarios and solutions. Uh, today's Alaska Outdoors subsistence scenarios and solution is by Robert Spindy of Anchorage. Robert writes, I conducted my own poll to test the validity of a previous published poll. My question was, do you believe that a rich rural resident who owns a million-dollar lodge, a Cessna 206 on floats, and a 28-foot boat should have a subsistence priority over a poor urban resident who doesn't have the proverbial pot or the window on which to throw it out of? I got a result that was drastically different from the professional pollster's tally. Of the 123 people I queried, 120 said no. Rural does not equate with poor, nor does rich urban mean rich. And for the law to give the rich a priority for hunting and fishing just because the rich have the means to live wherever and however they choose is wrong. That's signed by Robert D. Spindy of Anchorage. Now let's talk more with uh, John Strohmeyer. John, I have uh, witnessed the landing of a a 30, I'm going to say 36-inch rainbow, probably 18 pounds. I have filmed that landing uh, with a movie camera. I have taken stills of people landing a 15-pound rainbow. Neither of those were on the Kenai. I have personally taken on the Kenai about an eight, nine-pound rainbow. That's a minnow. <laughs> I knew you was going to say that. Actually, uh, you're, you're, you want to trade war stories, do you, on, on the Kenai <laughs> River? Okay. Let's hear yours. The biggest rainbow is the one that got away. <laughs> well, I, I've had lots of them get away now. I was, uh, this, is, this, this really brought me up to realize that I was in Alaska. I was fishing with a Mickey fin, catching dollies. And that was a lot of fun. And suddenly, whap, this fish hit it, came out of the water. It was clearly, it looked about a yard long to me, but that's, that's an exaggeration. But it was a beautiful, big, fat rainbow, and it slapped on that water. <coughs> Here I am with a four, number four uh, light uh, fly rod. Uh, fortunately, had a pretty good leader on there. And I was wondering how I was going to land that baby. I didn't have a net. And I thought, well, you tire it out. Well, the rainbow had other ideas. The rainbow left that little pool and went downstream. And that's the only time I was ever spooled in my life. That <laughs> baby took every bit of line. As far as I know, it's still heading it's for still Sedona. going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've had some of those, uh, John. But the one I landed, I would say, would be about, about 28 inches. Uh-huh. And that was also on a light fly rod. And that was on a flesh fly. And uh, I landed that one just below the uh, power line uh, uh, where we uh, 
I would, we were among the drifters. We would uh, drift a pool and, and, uh, and fish the pool. And this was just about 100 yards below the power line. Uh, John, uh, when did you do this? Uh, that was about three years ago. About three years ago. Yeah. It's a, I think there's a little island out there that they call Rainbow yeah. Island That's just it. below there. Yeah. You can take a left or you can go yep. right. Now, uh, yeah. I want to pin you down here. Now, where did you get that, right or left? I got it on the left. Most people go right. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> and there's a, there, that's tricky. I don't want anybody yep. to go down there because there's a hell of a sweeper down yes. there. Yes, yeah. And if you run into that sweeper, you know what happened to our great uh, uh, Kenai Angel there, he, yeah. who fished, who fell over 100 times, and uh, yeah. 101st time, he's gone. Yeah. Well, I was fishing with uh, Bob Trout uh, out of... Uh, trout fitters right. down there and we just above that uh, just exactly the spot that you're yeah. talking yeah. about is where i caught my fish right now i think i caught mine just a little bit after you did so okay. mine was probably the same fish that you released yeah. and so he was he had grown just a little bit so i'm sure my All fish right. was bigger than yours well okay i'll concede that <laughs> but I'll tell you, it was a thrill, was a thrill. i fortunately had a good friend uh, along who knitted it for me. Isn't it amazing that you can be in the, the busiest highway in the state, yeah. and, and you can hear the trucks going by, yeah. and still have some of the best rainbow yeah. fishing? It's right. a paradox. Well, it's, 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 it's road accessible, yeah. and it's, that's its problem. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, uh, I fault the uh, Daily News a bit uh, about the way they report uh, activities on the Kenai. The Kenai is the... Uh, it's right smack in their whole uh, circulation area. Uh, and yet all we get is uh, whether we get reports from the fishing game and what, what, what's running and how, you know, whether it's good, bad, fair, or so forth. But there's no real shoe leather or boot weather wearing, uh, wearing out reporting, the kind that puts a, a, uh, an aggressive reporter on the stream and he reports the abuses, the tremendous abuses, the stresses. or just read the record. Look what's happening to those pools on the Kenai now. One guide boat stops. Okay, as soon as he's off, there's another one in there. As soon as he's off, there's another. These are all the choice pools up and down to, I, I don't go beyond Skelac Lake. Uh, I'll let somebody else cover Ski, the area below Skelac Lake. But it's a stress stream. And uh, I don't get the feeling that we're reporting the stresses. Uh, Craig Medrid is a great reporter. When I came here, I was very much impressed in what he did on the guides, for example. You know, he actually dug in hard. But Craig is becoming more of a preacher than he is a, a, a reporter, and this this worries me. Uh, and uh, so, what what's happened is they leave the reporter to a new kid on the staff who uh, just checks with the fishing game on uh, whether the uh, whether the first run is at uh, full run or half run or whatever. Well, could the newspaper actually make a difference on what's happening by reporting it, John? Oh, I think it could raise the consciousness of Alaskans, and this is what worries me. Alaskans are spoiled people. We're used to having this great outdoors, taking it for granted, having the big fish, taking it for granted. At some point, we've got to say we've got to protect the resource. And damn it, if we're not going to leave it up to fishing game or anybody else. We who are using it and enjoying it ought to be protecting it. We're the ones that got to bite the bullet, as you're saying. Well, okay. yeah, we yeah. have to be. Yeah, we have to be uh, custodians of that, uh, protectors. Let's let's talk about that for just a second, uh, John. In your book, you have uh, some things relative to subsistence. Okay. And uh, you're talking about in a chapter that says here is free, yeah. and you're talking about uh, the 
one of the cases that you bring up here is that uh, where that the Alaska natives can uh, uh, can ha have can sell their their uh, subsistence caught fish. Well, they're not permitted to. But not permitted did. to, but they did. Yeah. And uh, in it, you mention a uh, that one native fisherman did not resist. I'm reading now. One, but many native fishermen do not resist the temptation to turn salmon into cash when willing buyers appear. In a rare crackdown, L. George, say his name, Schneck, a Bellingham, Washington fish supplier, was arrested in the summer of 92 for buying 53 pounds of king salmon from natives who sold their subsistence fish. He was fined $50,000, sentenced to six months in jail, but his fishing and his fishing boat boats were compensated. But you didn't mention in there uh, anything about the native fishermen. What happened to them, John? Uh, I, I don't know what happened to them. Uh, I'm sure that they were uh, fined as well. But, um, you know, it, it's pretty hard. It's, it's, it's very easy to make judgmental uh, observations. Uh, these are cash-poor people up there. As someone comes up there flashing a, a roll of cash and say, I'd like to buy your salmon, uh, it's pretty tempting. It's pretty tempting. One of those that sold their fish to this Bellingham guy was George Atla, was he not? Uh, I'm not I'm not certain that's the same case, but I think George was uh, was was fine, was he not? <coughs> I think so. Are these not the fish uh, that come into the the area that we're talking about there? Are they not the same uh, chum salmon that go by False Pass? Well, do you know that I, one I, way I, or the other? Well, I know the argument there, uh -huh. and the uh, uh, you could make a case for that, but. Uh, uh, you know, scientists themselves are a little unsure on where those fish are going, or whether they're coming from, <laughs> and uh, whether they're catching them at Falls Pass before they're catching them up there or not. That is a continuing argument, and boy, don't get me into that one. Well, here's, the, here's, the, here's where I was coming to, and, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to someone that has investigated this as thorough as you have, is that here we are on a river where the people that live there have illegally taken the fish and sold them, They've taken them as subsistence and sold them. Uh, actually, I think they stripped the roe out and sold the roe, in some cases at least. Uh, and, uh, and now they're coming back and complaining because there's no fish. Now, it seems to me that they fouled their own nest. Now, is that just my uh, uninformed uh, uh, well, observation, or have you got into that? What I've reported is one case uh -huh. where they nailed them. Yeah, they did catch them. In. I don't know how pervasive this practice is, and neither do you. Yeah. And if it is pervasive, of course it's a problem. And uh, I would hope that the natives themselves would be the policemen up there on these things. My gosh, I uh, got some great friends up there in Bethel on the Kuskokwim. They depend upon the salmon runs for a living, and it, they ought to have the incentive to police their own areas. And I have a feeling that they do in their own way. John, in your book, uh, you treat a subsistence a little bit. Uh, Tell us where you are on subsistence in your book and personally. Well, it's, it's been, um, let's, let, let, let's put it this way, I reported it. You know, I reported from the McDonald, McDowell case onto the other guy who brought the suit against the, uh, the exclusive guides. Ken Osacek. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, and that was my first obligation was to report how this issue surfaced. We know what was in the uh, Native Claims Settlement Act. Uh, that we assume that uh, 
uh, but uh, this was all, you know, the, the resources were going to be common. These are common resources and all Alaskans were entitled to them. That book at least gives you the, uh, the basis for the, uh, for, for, for the argument today. And the solution to the argument today is just that it's just that it's gone into impossible uh, lengths to just we've got everything in here, including the uh, political parties taking sides, the urban types, uh, the the uh, uh, the gunmen taking sides, the uh, the environments taking sides. Everybody is fighting, but that's Alaska for you. And somehow, out of this, <laughs> some solution may emerge. And I have a feeling that. Uh, we're uh, we're a state that uh, after the battle is over, we do compromise. Yeah, I'm uh, so not going to tell you how I compromise, <laughs> except I agree that the million-dollar guy out there in uh, uh, <coughs> in Bethel or wherever, uh, I don't think there are any million-dollar guys in Bethel. <laughs> but how about Barrow? I think I think we got a few up there. I don't think they're entitled any more care <laughs> than I am. In your epilogue, uh, chapter twenty, you're. Uh, new epilogue. Uh, it reads this way, John. It is, it is 1997, four years since this book was first published by Simon & Schuster. As Alaska heads into the 21st century, what has this state, young state done to deal with the formid formidable problems inflicted on it by the development which has come with such overwhelming speed in the final years of this century? And you say very little. Yeah. Now, the question I would ask, the John, uh, of you, since you've said very little, uh, here we have a state that uh, is owned by the people by constitutional yeah. rights, different than any other state in the yeah. Union. We have a state that lacks uh, any income tax, uh, no state sales tax. Yeah. The state, uh, the residents are have the privilege of having a permanent fund dividend each year. We have... Uh, cultural and uh, sporting facilities across the state uh, that are paid for, that uh, debt-free. Uh, we are a state that has a multi-billion dollar cash fund, and you say we have done very little. I suspect that uh, maybe some of the visionaries that have put this together may take exception to that, John. Well, I don't see how you can take exception to it. I think what's happened here, we now have a state that has had, that has distributed 20 years of of uh, permanent fund payouts. And I think that spoiled us. We don't pay any taxes to speak of. We're, we're, we're takers. And, uh, and when I say very little has been done, very little has been done on settling the subsistence issue. We are gonna have a vote on it, I guess, if the Republicans uh, uh, decide that they're going to follow the, uh, the commission's report. We still don't know what to do with 23 billion in the permanent fund. And uh, and we still don't know where that revenue gap is going to be filled that, uh, as oil is running out. You know, the, give, give the oil companies credit. They've been very aggressive on developing new fields and uh, pumping out old fields. But the dough, is the, the stuff is running out. It's irreplaceable. Well, but here's, the, here's my point, John. Uh, here's uh, Texas, Oklahoma, right. uh, places in Canada that had these big oil booms. Right. And they did lots of things, and now they're ghosts. There's nothing there. The people's homes have been devaluated. Devalu they're gone. Some cases, they're ghost towns in there. But here's Alaska, where we profited by that. Uh, and, and many will say that, uh, that we uh, may, may have made some mistakes. But look where we are compared to anywhere else. And then you say, 
we did nothing. Now you could. No, I didn't say we did nothing. We spent uh, we spent that oil money in in, in some very constructive ways. Well, we very also, little. We very also, little. You we said. also wasted a lot of it. But the real problems. The real problems are simply one subsistence, two permanent fund, and three revenue gap. Now, those are the big problems facing this state. And I haven't gotten into the Bering Sea yet. I, uh, <laughs> and uh, that's worth another afternoon. But. John, let's take another afternoon. We've run out of time today. I appreciate you being here. Uh, we, we have run clear out of time. But before we close the show, there's just time for one last cast. Today's one last cast is titled One in a Row. From reading books and writing reports as part of his school studies, John Rosedale got the idea he wanted to come to Alaska. As John talked about Alaska, his father Miles conceived an idea for a father-son fishing outing. John's or Miles's business schedule demanded him to fly monthly from his fo- home in Arcadia, California, to Oregon. These trips accomplished two things that brought about an Alaska fishing excursion. First, it built up miles on his frequent flyer program, which resulted in two free tickets to Alaska. Next, while on the airline, he read articles and advertisements in magazines, which gave him enough information to begin a search for a place to go. He sought a lodge, which would uh, be comfortable with a youngster in camp, and would uh, assist he and John in having a good time, considering their limited ability as fishermen, and one that met his budget requirements. Miles put it, Uh, One that talked the most knowledge about fishing and not just bragging about the lodge. After a time of reading, letter writing, and telephoning, father and son found the place they were looking for. They found one that seemed to know Alaska and appeared very knowledgeable about fishing and fishing in the lodge's area, and reservations were made. Through careful planning and a little luck, all arrangements made by their travel agency was correct. Their flights were on time. They were recognized and greeted by lodge personnel when they stepped off the plane. Their luggage arrived with them, and the lodge itself was as they had imagined it would be. Once in camp, it took little time for the city to slip off, wilderness to slip on, cares of business and school to go away, and fishing to begin. They back-trolled glory hole and drifted slew hole for kings, sockeye doubles on most of the time in the lower one-third of fish and game hole, lost the biggest fish of the trip in Cook's Hole, learned fly fishing at Mosquito Point, got skunked in Aquarium Hole, and had their best day at Tin Shack Hole. John landed his first fish in Alaska and his first salmon on a fly rod while fishing just off Mosquito Point. He was assisted by a fellow fish fly fisherman from Hastings, New Zealand. His father recorded the event with the camera to show Mom back home and for the benefit of any of John's doubting school friends. Father and son agreed that their first trip to Alaska was just one in a row of many to come. When you go outdoors, take a young person with you and teach them by your example what it means to be a sportsman. Behind the wheel or in the boat or on the road or in the field, take the higher trail and practice ethics of fair chase. Goodbye and good luck. May God bless you in the land of the midnight sun and may your days be happy and long in Alaska's outdoors. Tuesday, as always, we'll give you accurate and authentic answers for Alaskans by Alaskans. In the meantime, keep in touch.